section nine of the lives of the queens of england volume nine by agnes and elizabeth strickland this librivox recording is in the public domain mary beatrice of modena chapter three part three holyrood palace had been repaired and a royal suite of apartments fitted up and furnished for the accommodation of the duke and duchess of york and the retinue there can be little doubt that the state beds at present pointed out by guide-books and guides as the beds of mary queen of scots and charles i were a part of this arrangement all the ancient royal furniture at that palace having been plundered or destroyed by cromwell's troopers the crimson damask state bed which was preserved from the conflagration at leslie house is very similar to the bed now shown at holyrood as that of mary stuart and certainly both are a hundred years too modern for beds of the sixteenth century if the duchess of york occupied the crimson bed at holyrood it would of course be styled queen mary's bed after her consort succeeded to the regal office and retaining her name after she was forgotten by the vulgar has probably thus been added to the numerous posthumous goods and chattels with which tradition has fondly endowed mary of scotland it is a curious fact that james the second and mary d'este had in their french palace of saint germain a room furnished with a bed carved ebony chairs and other movables that once pertained to james's royal grandmother mary queen of scots which the marquis de crequy declares they brought from england with them they were much more readily obtained in france from fontainebleau or Ambois as a gift from louis the fourteenth james and his consort appear to have been better contented with their scottish palace than some of their followers one of the gentlemen in their household writes to his friend in london we are not so well accommodated as at st james's and yet whatever the matter is we do rather dread than desire to return to you so that sometimes i fear things are worse than we are persuaded to believe and that we shall not see you whilst the parliament sits i was willing to tell you thus much because i believe you will not be told it in your gazette let me know what the terrible men at westminster are acting and what you think of our case and pray believe that whatever i am i will be dear sir your beadsman edinburgh october thirtieth sixteen eighty the english parliament or rather the prevailing faction that had succeeded in driving the duke of york from court was following up the success already achieved by pushing on the bill for excluding him from the crown the popish plot was the two-edged sword with which the leaders of the faction fought since it furnished both the pretext against him and deprived him of effectual assistance from every one of his own religion by the terror of the executions that had been perpetrated on innocent persons accused of being engaged in it the commons passed the bill for excluding the duke of york from the succession and when lord russell brought it up to the lords he said if his own father were to vote against it he would accuse him of high treason words which implied the most unconstitutional threat against every senator who should presume to exercise the parliamentary privilege of voting according to his own conscience the bill was however rejected by a majority of sixty-three the bishop stood in the gap and saved the crown for the rightful heir although they were opposed to his creed they at any rate acted like honest and courageous men and by their votes that day ought to have won everlasting confidence and gratitude from james for with the exception of compton they were his best friends 
well did his foes and the agitators who made zeal for the protestant religion the pretense for faction and persecution know it an attempt was immediately made by that party to excite popular fury against the whole bench a lampoon song was compounded and sung about the streets for this purpose called the bishops and the bill of which every verse ends with this line the bishops the bishops have thrown out the bill in conclusion it daringly exhorts the crowd to throw out the bishops who threw out the bill it was in this parliament that the project so bitter to a parent's heart was first started of making james's own children supplant him in the succession or rather to invest the prince and princess of orange with the power of the crown under the name of regents for him whom it was proposed to banish five hundred miles from his own dominions and if his consort who was then only two and twenty years of age should bear a son the prince was to be taken from his parents and placed under the guardianship of the princesses his sisters james bore these aggravating proceedings with less irritation than could have been supposed nor did they cause the slightest change in his affection for his daughters whom he did not at that period imagine capable of entering into the confederacy against him meantime he and his fair and faithful consort endeavoured not successfully to conciliate the regard of those with whom their present lot was cast a brilliant court was kept at holyrood to which resorted the principal nobility and gentry of the land and mary beatrice soon succeeded by her gracious and prudent deportment in winning the hearts of the generous aristocracy of scotland if her religion were unpopular the purity of her mind and manners was impeachable young beautiful innocent and desirous of pleasing cold indeed must have been the hearts that could have hardened themselves against her gentle influence and it is certain that the interest she excited at that period in scotland operated long in favour both of her husband and her son and was even felt to the third generation the scotch ladies were at first greatly astonished at the novel refreshment of tea which her royal highness dispensed at her evening parties that beverage having never before been tasted in scotland but the fashion was quickly imitated and soon became general an interesting testimony to the popular conduct of this princess during her residence in scotland is rendered by a learned author of that nation who wrote the history of the house of este under her patronage in his dedicatory epistle to her he says at first your coming among us our loyalty to our sovereign and our duty to his only brother disposed us to everything in our power that might be acceptable to so great a princess but your royal highness condescending to the simplicity in which we live your affable deportment towards all that have the honour to come near your person and your seeming pleased with our weak endeavours to serve you do justly challenge that respect as do now to yourself which we must however have paid to your quality when we reflected how long we had been strangers to a court we could not think ourselves ill-fitted to receive a princess born and bred in the paradise of the world only as we then knew your royal highness came prepared to bear with the plainness of our northern climate so we since find that you are in some measure delighted with it and begin to flatter ourselves that the happiness of so illustrious a guest which was procured to us at first by your obedience is now continued to us by your choice the green strip at the foot of the hill behind the abbey of holyrood is still called the duke's walk 
from the duke of york having delighted in walking there it being then shaded with stately oaks which like the stuart dynasty have all been swept away the game of the golf and tennis were the favorite amusements of the gentry of those times the duke of york was frequently seen in the golfing party on the links of leith with some of the nobility and gentry i remember in my youth says the learned titler of woodhousley to have often conversed with an old man named andrew dixon a golf club maker who said that when a boy he used to carry the duke's golf clubs and to run before him and announce where the balls fell the sailor prince being a friend to ancient customs encouraged the citizens and mechanics of the good town to take a share in these manly sports and pastimes and for this end he always chose his partner at golf from those classes his example was generally imitated and thus the public games became a bond of good fellowship between high and low the object for which they were originally instituted the oral traditions of edinburgh record the following instance of the frank and gracious conduct of the duke of york to one of his humble allies at the golf his royal highness and the duke of lauderdale who were both expert golfers generally engaged on opposite sides and one day they determined to play for an unusually high stake james called a working shoemaker named john paterson to second him and after a very hard contest defeated his antagonist when the duke of lauderdale paid the stake which is said to have been some hundreds of broad pieces his royal highness handed the gold to paterson with these words through your skill i have won this game and you are therefore entitled to the reward of the victory the princely courtesy of the compliment being a trait of more refined generosity than the princely munificence of the gift and dear we may be sure were both to the heart of the bonny scot who had seconded the brother of his sovereign so stoutly on the links of leith that day notwithstanding his popery james was at that period one of the finest gentlemen in europe the following anecdote is worthy of the grandson of henry of navarre when lochiel a brave highland cavalier who had formerly rendered signal services to the loyal cause was presented to james at holyrood he received him with marks of great distinction and in full court honored him with his conversation and put many pleasant questions to him touching the adventures of his youth finally he asked him for his sword lochiel having delivered it his royal highness attempted to draw it but in vain for it was somewhat rusty being a walking or dress sword which the highlanders never made use of in their own country the duke after a second attempt gave it back to lochiel with this compliment that his sword never used to be so uneasy to draw when the crown wanted its service lochiel who was modest even to excess was so confounded that he could make no return to so high a compliment and knowing nothing of the duke's intention he drew the sword and returned it to his royal highness who addressing himself to those about him you see my lords said he smiling lochiel's sword gives obedience to no hand but his own and thereupon was pleased to knight him james has been unsparingly accused by modern historians of countenancing all the cruelties that were practised on the insurgent cameronians and other nonconformists in scotland by presiding in council when the torture of the boot was applied there is not the slightest proof that he ever was woodrow indeed asserts that james was present on one occasion 
when Sproul, a wild fanatic, who was suspected of a design to blow up the palace of Holyrood with the Duke and Duchess of York in it, was thus examined, and he quotes the almost inaccessible records of the Scottish Privy Council as his authority. Sir John Dalrymple, one of the most faithful and industrious of documentary historians, honestly avowed that he had been unable to find any such entry in the council books. But even if Woodrow were an entirely faithful witness of things which touched the passions and prejudices of his party so closely, he has only mentioned, not verified, a solitary instance of the kind, which certainly does not warrant later writers in representing this unfortunate prince as having been in the constant habit of amusing himself with those revolting exhibitions. The fact is that the dreadful scenes referred to took place under the auspices of the brutal Lauderdale before James came and after his departure, and as both are indiscriminately styled the Duke in the records. The mistake was very easily made by persons who were not very careful in testing their authority by the simple but unerring guide of dates. James and his duchess arrived in Edinburgh in perilous times, and in the midst of the sanguinary executions that followed an insurrection, in which great outrages had been committed on the lives and properties of the Episcopalian party. The duke did his utmost to calm the jarring elements, which were ready to break out into fresh tumults. The council, breathing blood, were foregoing to the rigor of the law. James offered pardon to the condemned on the easy terms of crying, God save the king. The council talked of death and tortures. His royal highness recommended madhouses and hard labor or banishment, and his suggestions proved more efficacious than the barbarous proceedings of Lauderdale and his colleagues. He succeeded in a great measure in tranquilizing Scotland. He gained the esteem and respect of the gentry, and he won the affections of the people by his gracious acknowledgment of the marks of respect they paid him. If he had governed England half as wisely for himself as he did Scotland for his brother, or observed the same moderation in regard to his religion, after he became king, which he did when Duke of York, history would have told a different tale of the close of his career. Letters from Scotland, says Bolstrode, tell us that affairs go there according to wish, that the Parliament there has written a letter of thanks to the king for sending the Duke of York, which we hope will break the measures of those who flatter themselves with support from that kingdom, which has not been in many ages more united than it is at present under the prudent conduct of his royal highness. The letters add that the duke is highly esteemed and beloved of all sorts of people, and that there is a constant and great court of lords and ladies. James showed on some occasions a tenderness for human life, that goes far to disprove the cruelty with which he is generally charged. In February, 1681, we are told by Fountain Hall, that a sentinel at the gates of the Abbey of Holyrood, being found asleep on his post, when the Duke of York passed, was brought to a court-martial, and sentenced by General Dalziel to die, for that breach of military discipline. In pursuance of this sentence, he was carried to Leith Links for execution, but when all was ready, the Duke of York interceded for his life and obtained it. The Duke and Duchess of York, though generally popular, were exposed to some mortifications on account of their religion. On Christmas Day, the scholars of King's College thought proper to entertain them with the obnoxious pageant of burning the Pope in effigy in the court of Holyrood under their windows. This, says Sir John Lauder, 
was highly resented as an inhospitable affront to the duke of york though it was only to his religion their royal highnesses were wise enough to pass it over in silence as the wild frolic of young people it was besides intended as a reprisal for the westminster scholars having dressed up as jack presbyter and treated the said jack with sundry indignities such was the turbulent state of the times that children took a warm part in the political and polemic disputes which convulsed both kingdoms while in scotland mary beatrice met with a frightful accident which had nearly cost her her life in consequence of being thrown from her horse with great violence but fortunately for her on a sandy plain if it had been on a rocky ground she must have been killed for her long riding dress got entangled in some part of her saddle and she was dragged a considerable distance with her face on the sand and received several kicks from the infuriated horse before she could be extricated from her perilous situation when she was taken up she was covered with dust and blood blackened with bruises and perfectly insensible every one thought she was dead surgical aid being procured she was bled and put into bed she only suffered from the bruises and recovered without any injury to her person it does not appear that the duke was with her on this occasion he had a very great objection to ladies riding on horseback and when mary beatrice was first married to him he was accustomed to tell her that it was for many reasons a dangerous and improper position for women she was however passionately fond of equestrian exercise and her importunities had prevailed over his extreme reluctance to allowing her to ride she always said that his indulgence to her was so great that it was the only constraint he had ever attempted to place on her inclination and she regarded it as a proof of his complaisance that he had withdrawn his prohibition against her taking this dangerous pleasure so devoted was she to her favorite exercise that as soon as she was recovered from the effects of her accident she had sufficient courage to mount her horse again james who was too courteous a husband to interpose his marital authority to prevent his youthful consort from exercising her willful inclinations on finding his persuasions unavailing had in the meantime given so terrible an account of the narrow escape she had had to the duchess of modena that that princess wrote in an agony of maternal alarm to her daughter telling her that she should die of grief if she thought she would ever be rash enough to put herself into such peril again and that she should never receive a letter from england without expecting it to contain the news of her death she also reminded mary beatrice that she was frequently in a situation that rendered such exercises highly inexpedient as well as dangerous in consequence of these urgent letters from her mother mary beatrice gave a solemn promise never to mount a horse again a privation which in consequence of the bad roads in scotland at that time almost impracticable for coaches was of course very great her only resource after this was the then usual conveyance of a horse litter if she wished to accompany the duke in any of his highland expeditions but she appears to have been generally stationary with her court at holyrood abbey the duke of york her husband was at that time to use the expression of a contemporary writer caressed not only by the grandees of the nation but likewise gracious in the eyes of the vulgar even to admiration no people ever demonstrating more lively expressions of joy as well as love for his royal person yet their royal highnesses were impatient of their exile 
their servants whom the earl of arlington always emphatically designated a senseless pack were ever importuning james to solicit the king for his recall and representing to him how materially his interests were suffering from the proceedings of monmouth who drove on his ambitious schemes openly with a headlong violence that was only less dangerous than the masked treachery of the prince of orange whose mining operations like those of the unseen mole in the dark might be detected by the occasional traces of his works appearing on the surface another plot was devised as a pretext for prolonging the duke's banishment from the court of which the leading instrument was an irish papist named fitzharris and in this there was a covert attempt to involve the duchess by the absurd pretense that montecuculi the late modernese envoy had offered him ten thousand pounds to kill the king which he fitzharris had refused though montecuculi had assured him that it might easily be done at madame mazarin's by poison adding that the duke of york was privy to the design that a great army was to come from flanders and france to place him on the throne and the duchess of modena had raised large sums of money to support the enterprise and that a great many parliament men were to be boiled alive to make a saint on pule or oil not very holy one would think if composed of such ingredients to anoint him and all succeeding kings of england at their coronations such a tale being seriously deposed on oath before two secretaries of state and eagerly taken up by the whig leaders of the prevailing party in parliament is at once a picture of the excited state of the public mind and of the want of common principles on the part of those by whom it was supported charles defeated the designs of this party by proceeding against fitzharris for high treason in the court of king's bench after his condemnation fitzharris confessed that he had been suborned by shaftesbury and others to accuse the queen and the duke of york and that the libel was compounded by the lord howard of estric at that time the unprincipled ally of the exclusionists and one of their tools the long winter passed wearily over the banished duke the coldness of the season was severely felt in the northern metropolis by his italian duchess from the sweet south but she bore everything with uncomplaining patience for his sake the spring brought them heavy tidings their little daughter the princess isabella a very lovely and promising child in her fifth year died at st james's palace on the fourth of march and king james sent mr griffin express to break this distressing news to the bereaved parents it was the more afflicting to both as james pathetically observes because they had not the satisfaction of seeing and assisting her in her sickness but those hardships were the unavoidable sequels of their uneasy banishment and cruel persecution there is a scarce mezzotinto engraving of this royal infant from a painting which was perhaps burnt either at whitehall or st james's palace she is represented with a chaplet of flowers on her head and her left hand on the forehead of a lamb she was the last surviving of the three living children which had been born of the marriage of mary of modena with the duke of york and was buried in westminster abbey as her brother and sister had been in the vault of mary queen of scots james flattering himself that some little sympathy would be felt for him and his consort by his brother's counsel under so great a sorrow sent his favorite colonel churchill to the king with letters from both beseeching him to accord permission for the duchess to come either to tunbridge wells or bath for the benefit of her health which had been much impaired by her residence in a climate so different from that 
of which she was a native as well as by her affliction for the loss of her only child for himself the duke added he should be well content to reside at audley end or anywhere his majesty might think fit so that it was but in england churchill however informed his master in reply that there was little hopes of success for the impression was generally expressed by the king in his cabinet that his return would be the signal for a rebellion charles wrote to his brother that the present time was not favourable for their return and advised him to exercise the very necessary virtue of patience of which he confessed that he was himself in great need at that juncture one favour was however accorded to james after three or four months of deliberation and suspense namely the company of his daughter the princess anne who came in one of the royal yachts at leith where she landed july seventeenth and was received with all the honours due her rank on the twenty eighth the parliament of scotland met with great pomp the duke as lord high commissioner from his brother king charles rode in state from holyrood palace to the parliament house and opened it in person the duchess the princess anne and all their ladies being present the appearance of so unwonted galaxy of royal and noble beauties in jewelled pomp added grace and glory to the scene and was calculated to soften the combative spirit in which the scottish peers and chieftains had from time immemorial been accustomed to meet many a deadly debate between feudal foes and their retainers had been fought out on such occasions with dirk and dag while the rival cries of clear the causeway announced the collision of hostile magnates and their followers in streets too narrow to admit of anything like a courteous passage even between persons who were not eagerly seeking a pretext for deciding old grudges with blows the duke of york who had taken infinite pains to effect a general reconciliation among the highland chiefs and other great families who were all at open war with each other when he first arrived in scotland had shown good judgment in bringing the ladies to assist him by the influence of their bright eyes in keeping the peace at the first public assembly of those lately discordant elements after the suppression of a recent civil war the presence of these fair and gentle spectators was however censured by the sour fanatics of the day as uncommon and indecorous a proof that civilization had not advanced a single step in the northern metropolis since the days when john knox quenched the star of chivalry in gaul and wormwood the duke of york did his best to keep every one in good humour by giving a grand banquet to the whole parliament the lords by themselves and the commons by themselves at separate tables where everything was so discreetly arranged as to give general satisfaction then the good town of edinburgh being emulous of such princely hospitality voted another trait to their royal highnesses the duke and duchess of york the lady anne afterwards queen of great britain and the whole court of scotland were present at this entertainment it was given in the parliament house but to accommodate the company it was found necessary to pull down the partition which divided and where a new wall still divides the outer parliament house from the place where the bookseller's stalls are kept the expense of the entertainment exceeded one thousand four hundred pounds sterling the auspicious tide of affairs in scotland as well as the arrival of princess anne had a cheering effect on the spirits both of the duke and duchess of york the lately sorrowful court of holyrood emerged from tears and mourning into such a series of gaieties 
as enchanted the lively astonished the sober-minded and offended the puritanical portion of society such doings in scotland had never been witnessed within the walls of the royal abbey since the ill-omened night when the beautiful and unfortunate mary stuart honoured the bridal feet of bastion with her presence balls plays and masks were introduced these last however were soon laid aside the taste of the times being opposed to such ungodly innovations the mask was styled promiscuous dancing in which all sorts of people meet together in disguise the vulgar gave it a ribald name and this profane entertainment was therefore soon given up and the more elegant pastimes of poetic and dramatic masks and pastorals were substituted in which the princess anne with other young ladies of quality represented some of the ancient heathen mythological characters these were called masks a sort of musical drama such as the comus of milton and similar pieces by ben jonson shirley davenant and other dramatic poets of the last century these interludes were accompanied by music and set off with splendid dresses and decorations our fathers of the last age observes the first learned antiquarian titler of woodhousley used to talk with delight of the gaiety and brilliancy of the court of holyrood house the princesses were easy and affable and the duke then studied to make himself popular among all classes of men on the fourteenth of october was the duke of york's birthday keeped at edinburgh notes sir john lauder with more solemnities and more bonfires than the king's that of the duchess in the beginning of october was also observed with great pomp at the abbey in the same month the birthday of queen catherine on the fifteenth of november was kept by our court of holyrood house with great solemnity pursues our diarist such as bonfires shooting off cannon and acting a comedy called mithridates king of pontus before their royal highnesses wherein the lady anne the duke's daughter and the ladies of honour were the only actors he adds a bitter philippic against all such amusements a lively detail of the proceedings of the illustrious performers would have been more agreeable if the private theatricals of the court of the elegant and pure-minded duchess of york were subjected to stern censures from a man like sir john lauder who was far from going to the extremes of fanaticism it can scarcely be supposed that the coarse and oft-times profane representations of the public performers of the stage were tolerated the duke of york's company had dutifully followed their royal highnesses to edinburgh but found it an uncongenial atmosphere playhouses and players were constantly anathematized by the clergy and regarded by their congregations with scarcely less abhorrence than if they had been monks and nuns the duchess of york was passionately fond of music but had strong moral objections to the coarse comedies of the era she even entertained doubts of the propriety of appearing at operas though italian singers were patronized by her she was wont to say that there was no sin she believed in going to theatres provided the pieces that were represented were not of an objectionable character but that the stage might and ought to be rendered a medium of conveying moral instructions to the public instead of flattering and inculcating vice among the traces of the residence of the duke and duchess of york at holyrood may be reckoned the decoration of the gallery of that palace with the portraits of the kings of scotland for although they were not completed till the year sixteen eighty five the order was given by the duke 
who engaged john de witt a dutch artist to paint the whole one hundred and twenty in number according to the best style of his art in two years receiving for his reward one hundred and fifty pounds per annum it must be confessed that more than one of the beau ideals of the primitive sovereigns of caledonian fame bears a brotherly likeness to the saracen's head on snow hill while in scotland james applied himself zealously to business and with his usual regard for economy detected and put a stop to many of the peculations and abuses of the duke of lauderdale's creatures whereby he incurred the ill-will of that corrupt statesman and his duchess and many of their connections he bestowed his attention on the maritime and commercial interests of scotland all of which were materially improved during his residence in that nation he made several progresses to visit the principal towns and all the ancient palaces of scotland the greatest marks of respect were paid to him at glasgow linlithgow and stirling and whatever county he entered he was met on the boundary by the principal nobility and gentry of the shire and was attended by them as if he had been the sovereign but the irrefragable proof of the affection with which james was then regarded in scotland is the act of parliament which declared his rights as the heir of the crown nearest in blood to be immutable and that neither difference in religion nor any future act of parliament could alter or divert the said right of succession and lineal descent of the crown from the nearest heir such were the feelings which the resident and popular government of the duke of york had excited in the kindred land of his forefathers that there can be little doubt if he had been rejected by england but that he would have been instantly proclaimed and crowned in scotland and for this contingency the parliament had assuredly provided it is not to be supposed however that a country so divided in politics and religion as scotland was at that time was unanimous in affection for the persecuted heir of the britannic empire far from it a considerable faction not only cherished but professed republican principles the same party that had driven him from england was busily intriguing against him in the sister realm but so preponderant was the balance in his favour that the power of argyle who by his territorial possessions his heritable offices in the state his natural rights and extensive usurpations of the rights of others might be regarded as sovereign of two-thirds of the scotlands broke like a reed before him the arrest of that nobleman and the proceedings against him are foreign to the subject of this volume and are only mentioned because mary beatrice wrote a letter to king charles in favour of his son lord lorne a letter that is probably still in existence though hitherto inaccessible the earl of argyle escaped from prison by changing clothes with his daughter lady sophia lindsay's footman when she came to visit him and went out in that disguise bearing up her train some of the members of the council were unmanly enough to propose that this filial heroine should be publicly whipped through edinburgh the duke of york prevented it observing that they were not accustomed to deal so cruelly with ladies in his country mary beatrice bore her voluntary absence from the splendid circle of whitehall with infinitely more patience than her lord did his enforced banishment his anxiety to leave the generous friends in the north who had done so much for him and were willing to serve him with their lives and fortunes to return to the stormy vortex of his brother's court seems strange but the game was closely played there and the crown of a mighty empire was the stake 
james finally owed his recall to the avarice of the duchess of portsmouth who designing to appropriate five thousand pounds a year out of his revenue from the post office caused her modest wish to be made known to him by the king who had the weakness to propose it to his brother promising to give him an equivalent in some other way if he would oblige him the transfer could not be effected without james's presence in london hard as it appeared to him to be recalled for such a purpose when he had vainly made the most earnest representations of the perilous state of his wife's health and the necessity of removing her into a milder temperature he agreed to come though unaccompanied by his duchess for he had no leave to bring her End of section 9.